up guys it's your boy paul aka mr what the footy your favorite podcast host before going into today's episode if you haven't checked out last week's episode with lewis mcmillan at fulham football club please check it out after this episode of course lewis gave some key insights into why we have seen a rise in injuries so early on in the season and why he echoes Klopp and Guardiola in the return of the five sub rule. But guys, I have a special episode coming to you now. Whether you support Liverpool or Lincoln City, Arsenal or Accrington Stanley, fans across the board want good and transparent directors running their football clubs. And Tom Gorringe, commercial director and board member at Bristol Rovers is exactly that. He was at Portsmouth when they were navigating their way through fan ownership. He was at Cardiff being the link between the ownership and the fans when they went through their controversial change from blue to red. He was at Brighton working under Paul Barber, who's considered as one of the best CEOs in the country. We spoke about a plethora of issues from Project Big Picture to running a financially sustainable football club, from his admiration of Brentford's model to competing in a two club city. Guys, I hope you love this episode not like it i hope you love it so download subscribe rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend let's go what the footy what the footy what the footy what the footy knew some other guys liked me but i didn't know it was to that extent being a kid in primary school now it's putting powerful people and i think they need to recognize that but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So when in the league, let's just win this to appease the fan. Welcome to the What The Footy podcast. The podcast takes football fans behind the scenes, giving you insight into football, business, management and operations. Today I'm joined by a huge, huge guest, his rise to the top of the game has been very remarkable when you're talking about people behind the scenes who have an integrated strategy and realise the importance of involving fans. You have to simply mention his name. He's commercial director and a board member at Bristol Rovers, Tom Gorringe. Welcome to the What The Footy podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Nah, awesome. So we'd like to uh, kick off the show uh, with What The Footy Are You Lying For? So... Uh, Take me away with your uh, free statements. No pressure. Okay, so here they are. No pressure. Uh, so the three statements are, I used to play semi-professional football. I once lived next door to the vice president of the United States. And it's a topical one for you. Wow. Uh, and I've climbed Kilimanjaro. Yeah, those are some tough ones. Some <laughs> tough ones. The, what, the existing US president or a former US vice president, sorry? It was a vice president um, at the time. At the time. Um, you used to play semi-pro football. Um, I'll, I'll go with that as being true. I think that's that's believable. I think most people did. And you seem like somebody who's a bit of a sentiment. So um, I, think I'd go, I think I'll go with that. Um, next door to a US vice president. Um, it's, it's so random that 
you'd probably mention it for a particular reason, so it has to, to a degree, be true. Climbing Kilimanjaro, huge mountain. I think probably your your range is probably somewhere up in Scotland rather than rather than Kilimanjaro. So um, I'd say the first two are true, and the the last one is a lie. But we'll um, we'll find that towards the end. But um, but yeah, Tom, pleasure uh, having you on the podcast today. Uh, this season for the podcast, we're we're focusing on the structure of football clubs and how they operate. I thought it'd be great to get someone like yourself on here, being someone who's always cared about having an integrated strategy between management and fans. Just just sort of take everyone back to back to two thousand and eight, your early days at at Portsmouth, sort of navigating through a, a couple of administrations to to going on to work for Cardiff, man. Yeah, it was um it was a crazy time really. When when I first joined Pompey, it wasn't just my first role in in football. It was my first role anywhere. Um, so I was straight out of uni, started off initially as a placement, and ended up staying there for for four years. Uh, and four years of some of the craziest things that have happened at, at any club in in world football, really. So um. Yeah, we became the first Premier League club to go into administration. I'd imagine it'll be the only ever Premier League club to go into administration. Um, we had eight different rounds of redundancies. Um, so there was huge amounts of staff turnover and changes to the way that we operated and and all the upheaval and heartache that that brings. Obviously, we were, we were each kind of round we went through, you kind of build bonds with people and each time you go through one of those rounds, it brings everyone's closer together again. Mm. Um, so each time it kind of got more, and it almost got worse as it went on because you, we were all getting closer as a group and everybody's role almost became bigger and more important. Uh, and so each time we went through another round of redundancy, it, it kind of cut a little bit deeper. Um, so yeah, loved, loved my time there. We had uh, two relegations, two administrations, FA Cup final. Uh, we won Family Club of the Year, and uh, yeah, it was just a, an unbelievable experience. I think your first first job in football is always your most exciting. Yeah. Um, but yours was because everything's new. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah. I mean, it was weird for me because it's it's obviously we were the kind of if you watch Sky Sports News at that time, we were the main story for the best part of a year. We had cameras parked outside the office and. Um, they were filming live on the, the day, the, particularly the first day when we'd just gone into administration, they were making the redundancies. And I remember there's a few of us just sat in the office, just kind of waiting to be called in to be, be told if we were staying or not. Mm. And, um, and we were just having a chat about it, really waiting to be summoned. And the, the cameras were all kind of filming us in the window, so we had to shut all the blinds. Yeah. And we just sat in the dark, kind of waiting for the news. Um, but Pompey's just a, an unbelievable football club. It's obviously a club that's integrated into the heart of the community. Mm. And I think out of all the places I've worked, it's probably defined me and my career the most. Um, because one, it kind of, you, you really, I mean, you knew it anyway, but you could see firsthand how much the football club meant to, to the fan base, the city, how important it was for us to have those, those links and connections. Um, obviously, I was still at the club as they made that transition into fan ownership, yeah. uh, which again was a, a really important move for the football club and the best thing for them at, at that time. Um, so yeah, it was it was a, a kind of an emotional roller coaster, but at the same sort of time, that baptism of fire was was really important in building the foundations of why we all do what we do. I think everybody 
everybody who works in football should love it and it should be a passion of theirs yeah. and um, certainly the case for me um, but then having such an extreme first experience really kind of sets your focus then for for what the future holds yeah and then speaking of another baptism of fire you obviously at Cardiff when they did the uh, very controversial switch from blue to red just sort of taught me through through your time there the learnings there and, and the learnings that you that, that you're sort of bringing to Bristol in terms of bringing the fans along with all the decisions that you always make. Yeah, I mean, it, it was crazy, really. It's out of the frying pan and into the fire. So I ended up going to Cardiff. I met Julian Jenkins, who was the commercial director there. Uh, and we got on really well. And one thing led to another. And he said, I'd love to bring you in. And um, when I went there the first time, I had a good feeling about it. It felt a lot like Pompey. I think there's a lot of similarities between the two clubs and that they're, they're both quite friendly and... Um, and uh, kind of there's a good vibe within the cities and the football club is the core part of that for me you could tell that Cardiff at that time were a club on the up mm. on the pitch and all the infrastructure was there and um, they were doing things in the right way around the focus on family excellence and the match day experience and doing things the right way so the decision of the owner made the decision to change the colour of the kit um, which was a huge one uh, and hugely controversial I ended up somehow again it's probably a running theme through my career of um just taking on everything and anything um i ended up becoming the slo there so i i liaised directly with supporters mm. um and that quite often meant going into uh, kind of some of the the um more eclectic pubs within the city <laughs> and meeting some of the, the most hardcore fans and obviously you've got a an Englishman who's just rocked up in Wales mm. coming in and talking to them about the thing that's affected their enjoyment of their football club the most. Um, but again, like I said, I've kind of tried to front up as much as I could and be as open. And open. Yeah, what was the experience like? Because obviously like you see on, on, on the, uh, on some of the movies and the documentaries of, of the, the management speaking of the fans as well. And, typically don't really see fans get a lot of dialogue with, with people like yourself. What was the frustration of the fans at, at that time towards the management and the ownership? It was more towards the ownership. Yeah. Uh, and I think what I found, and again, it's something that's kind of stuck with me, was that most fans appreciate you fronting things mm. up and being there and having a dialogue with them. And quite often, and again, it's something I've said quite a lot through um, my time in the industry, uh, is ultimately we all want the same thing. Mm. Uh, we all we're all working for the football clubs. We want to make it better. We want to we want to achieve things on and off the pitch. Uh, and although sometimes there may be disagreements in how is the best way to do that, everybody should want and understand that we all want the same thing. Yeah. So um, the most important thing we can do from a club perspective is listen and understand what fans are looking for. And ultimately, if we can provide them with what they want then it makes a much easier experience for everybody. Um, obviously, the case at Cardiff was different in that, in terms of operationally as a football club, we didn't have any power over that decision. Um, the only person that could reverse that decision was the owner. Um, but what we did set up, and it, it worked really well, um, Mehmet Dalman, who's still there now, came in as chairman, and he agreed with us that he would meet the kind of the focal points of the fans groups to discuss particularly the branding issue with them. So we set up that procedure and then we met probably once every couple of months. 
and funnily enough, through one of these meetings, so I didn't know, uh, none of the fans knew, and I don't even think Mehmet knew until late. He uh, he gets a phone call. He said, "Okay, I'll see you soon." So I'm thinking, "What's that?" And five minutes later, the door opens in one of these meetings, and Vincent Tan walks in. Obviously, with his his trousers up as tight as you'd expect him. Shiny you know, shoes, green yeah. leather, shiny shoes. Um, literally the full full effect and uh he walked into the room and sat down and obviously it's a it's a huge moment that the the fans have been complaining about the color of the kit and to be honest we got quite lucky in that we got promoted that season mm. um and that kind of it didn't diminish that 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 whole kind of change of color and how important it was to the fan base but it certainly distracted people to an extent mm. Um, but this was obviously the, the, about a year later and um, yeah, he just walked into the room and sat down at the table and this was somebody who's been kind of that figure that you see on Scarlet's News every week and for the first time he was sat in front of the fans that had been complaining about this and he fronted up the questions to be fair and it was all very amicable and again it's another thing you kind of notice. Football is hugely emotional sport and it brings out the most extreme sides of everyone's personality. Mm. Um, but when you are sat in a room with people and discussing the things that mean the most to them about their club, they're not what they're kind of perceived to be on the terraces. Yeah. It's that kind of raging lunatic banging their fists and most 99% of fans you can sit there and have a genuine, reasonable conversation with. And, and that's what we saw that day with with Vincent um so yeah it was it was uh, a really interesting time again and another experience that I learned learned a lot from and uh yeah a great great football club so um yeah it's a yeah I guess another baptism of fire but any experience for me is a good one because you're always learning and, and developing and on to somewhere a bit more normal then you know moved to to Brighton and working with someone who's highly regarded as one of the best CEOs in the game in Paul Barber and also Tony Bloom, uh, obviously Brighton through and through. Um, just sort of talk me through what it was like working working underneath them and obviously what Brighton are building and anything you learnt there that you're trying to, to transfer over, over to Bristol. Yeah, I mean, again, Brighton is, is probably one of, if not the best run club in the country. Mm. Um I, I'm from Brighton originally. I, I grew up watching games at the Whip Dean, and uh, one of the things I always used to say before that point was that I'd never work there um, because for me it was important to try and keep those two things separate. Um, but I actually met I met Paul first of all in Australia. We were both talking at a conference out in in Melbourne, and uh, then that summer after Cardiff got relegated from the Premier League, I was approached by a recruitment agent about going to Brighton and. I originally said no, I said I'm quite happy here. Um, and one thing led to another anyway, and I, I met Paul and I, I met Tony and they really sold me the dream of the football club and in fairness to them, everything they said in our initial meetings has come to fruition. Mm. Um, like I said, Tony is uh, immensely passionate about the football club. Uh, he wants to see it reach the highest level possible. Um, he's obviously invested an incredible amount of money to get them to the point that they are. Um, but that's not his sole focus. He's one of the only people I've ever met in the game who's kind of his core thing, really, is doing the right thing via the supporters. Mm. 
So yes, the football side is important, and yes, it's important to invest in that. But ultimately, the most important thing for him is to make the right moral decision as well as the right business decision. Um, so quite often when we'd be there and doing presentations for the board and discussing things with him, that would be the first thing he would say. You'd do a long presentation about this is what we're going to do, this is this is the income we're going to generate, this is how we're going to develop things. And his first question always would be, how does that affect the supporters? And quite often yeah. you'd be there where you'd say, oh, we want this amount of money to invest in this. And the conversation would go, actually, if we invested more money, would this impact the supporters in a greater way and provide a better experience? Um, so he's a real rarity. And then obviously Paul Barber, like you said, is one of the, the um, most highly regarded executives in football. Uh, I reported to him directly when I was there. Mm. So we spent uh, quite a lot of time together. Uh, and it's just great to, to be able to, one, have him as a contact now that I can speak to, um, but two, to be there and learn from him and see how he engages with people and Definitely. how he approaches the various challenges that got thrown at us and um, obviously you're learning from that all the time so yeah again a very different experience but another one that is uh, another learning experience which is is what we all want and need. No, definitely, man. And just just moving on, obviously, to to Rovers. Sort of talk me through about what the club stands for. Obviously, I know you released that that letter to the fans about the strategy and what you guys are looking to achieve. Um, one of the key things I saw there was developing the fan base. What's what's it almost like running a club uh, in in a two club city and competing against Bristol City as well? Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, Bristol Rovers is, is an unbelievable football club, and it's one that uh, I think historically has always underachieved. Mm. Um, clubs never really had any significant investment. It's never really had any infrastructure, uh, and it hasn't had a great deal of success. And if you take all those three things into consideration, the fact that we're getting nine thousand people into which games every week is is crazy, really. Mm. Um, but at the kind of core of that is the fact that it's a community football club. We're a family club. We've got um, a very passionate fan base and that I've seen it firsthand since I've been there. Once you're kind of part of the family, you're in, that's it. You're locked in. And um, I've been thankful enough to have been welcomed in by by the supporters and it's uh, it's a great place to be. Um, in terms of the club and our strategy, like you, you touched upon there, um, we're obviously owned by by Wale Alcardi, who's uh, Jordanian, but there's a lot of similarities between him and, and Tony Bloom in that, um, again, he's, he's invested a credible amount of money into the football club. Um, but again, that's, that's not for his own benefit. It's not a vanity project for him. He really understands what the football club means, what the history is, uh, and he, again, he wants to do the right thing mm. by by supporters. Um, the, the letter you referenced to, they kind of set out our our kind of six strategic areas that we're focusing on as a, as a board and as a football club. Uh, and they are to improve the infrastructure. So we've, we've over the past few months utilised lockdown successfully to to build a new training ground. Um, Believe it or not, so that's that's well underway now. The first team are training there, and the buildings are going up around them. So again, that's a real kind of landmark moment for the football club. Mm. And the one thing the club really needs and has always needed is is a new stadium. So that that remains a priority for us. Um, we're obviously working, like all clubs are, to try and become more sustainable. Um, 
and that obviously means focusing on increasing our revenues where we can uh, and cutting costs and, and operating in an efficient manner in terms of how we're spending uh, the money that we've got mm. as well. And I think you see that across, across all clubs now, particularly with the salary caps yeah. that are in place at League I was, One. I was just about to say that um, as well, because we, we've been hearing this sort of buzzword, financial sustainability, being, being almost thrown around. You've seen the salary cap come in. We've seen obviously a lot of talk as well regarding Project Big Picture in regards to obviously clubs in the two hundred and fifty million pound bailout. What's what's the real road to sustainability? Like how how do you almost get to that point whereby the club can almost run by itself and run run like clockwork? It's, it's very difficult, if not impossible, at this yeah. point, uh, and that's purely because the player wages that or the amount you need to spend on player wages to have a squad that is competitive in this league mm. uh, isn't sustainable with the average revenues that a football club at this level will generate. Uh, and ultimately, that's a, that process trickles down from the Premier League mm. as their TV rights deals increase, they spend more money on players uh, and the, the kind of carrot of getting promoted into the Premier League gets bigger because of that and because of the parachute payments of the clubs coming down from the Premier League into the Championship. Yeah. There's then a knock-on effect for clubs in the Championship to go, well, actually, it's worth a gamble. It's worth spending 20, 30 million. We're going to have to spend 20 or 30 million on players to compete with those clubs that have just come down from the Premier League. That filters down to the clubs that are then coming up from League One into the Championship going, well, one, obviously, our, our kind of cut, the TV rights still slightly bigger. Um, but even if you spent every penny of the TV money increase that you get going from League One into the Championship, you're still going to have the lowest budget in the Championship and you're almost certainly going to get relegated. Mm. So um, then there's a kind of pressure and encouragement for you to invest even more money. Uh, and then ultimately, then that filters down into League One and to League Two. And you can even see it in the, cha- in the National League now. Now with, with clubs like Salford and a few others that are investing heavily to try and get into into the football league. So as we sit here today, sustainability in League One, if you want to compete, and that's not just kind of, and there are a handful of clubs, so you should probably see it with, with Accrington and Burton and a couple of others that will only spend what they generate um, mm. pretty much, and that's it. Um, if you are to do that and it kind of rolls on to the next point within our strategy yeah. uh, you have to be generating additional income and one of the ways to do that is obviously through player trading um, so a core focus of our strategy is to really focus on young players that we can develop and obviously the training ground plays a core part of that um, but that we can get in at the right age, that we can have them under contract, that we can develop and nurture them so that they can benefit us on the pitch, but also so that we retain it as a valuable asset for us to to either trade and reinvest into the first team or continue to play them and play a part in our development on the pitch. Um, and I think the club historically, so in the last couple of years, the focus has been slightly different in trying to sign players that are for the now and that we're going to perform today but quite often were coming towards the end of their career. Uh, and ultimately, when we're signing players like that, you're obviously paying them for the term of their contract. Yeah. At the end, generally, they're all leaving on a free and they're going somewhere else. And effectively, that money we've spent on them is dead at that point. So we really want to see players as an investment as opposed to a cost. 
Uh, and so that's obviously we've got 14 players in this year or this window. Uh, and I think almost all of those fit into that category. Um, Just jumping in on the academy side, because yeah. I think it's really interesting because I think I saw, saw a stat the other day of the number of players in the England first team who were either on loan uh, EFL clubs or developed from EFL clubs. What's your thoughts on, on the sort of loan system? Because I, I almost believe that um, Premier League players at places like Chelsea and Arsenal being loaned to, to clubs in League One, League Two and the Championship is almost almost reduced and stifled the ability for clubs to really produce their own talent to then sell on for a, for a higher value. Like if, you, if you really look around um, the Championship and below, only really maybe some clubs like Charlton and Brentford and Exeter have been really successful in producing players, having sell-on clauses and, and, and really going from there. Is, is your strategy solely on, 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 on maximising the youth players or are you trying to do what Brentford have done as well and scout players abroad for cheap, bring them over and sell them as well? Or is it solely just academy focus? Yeah, no, it's, it's both really. So, um, like I said, the, the 14 players we've signed... Yeah have given us a, an average age of our whole squad for this season of just over 23, wow, yeah. uh, which is young. Um, part of those are players that have come through our own academy. Um, and obviously we want to kind of bridge that pathway into the first team and give them experience and um, develop them. So we've got players that played in the first team now will probably go out and loan this season, gain some more experience elsewhere. But again, they're players that we see part of our, our development in the future. Uh, and then we've also recruited players that fit that model so that are young. Um, we've got one lad on loan from Chelsea mm. um, and we've got another one from Derby, but the vast majority of them are players that we own and that's the, the preference really is to sign players that are our players that we, we gain the benefit from the development that we put in place for them. Um, so uh, I mean, the loan system can be useful and uh, we, we mentioned that Quinton earlier part of their model and part of the way that they're able to operate sustainably is to utilise loans from bigger clubs and obviously those players come in, they allow them to compete at our level without spending big money on wages um, but ultimately then those players return to their parent clubs and quite often will then go on loan somewhere else at a high level the season after so um, yeah, that, that's, that's not our strategy we, yeah. we kind of want to try and generate income and value so it, yeah effectively it's it's more like the Brentford model yeah. than than any other um that I've seen and is there any other other clubs other than Brentford that, that you look at as the benchmark of, of what you're trying to do uh Brentford do it I think Brighton have done a, a reasonable job recently yeah. uh Peterborough in our league are, are one of the best at picking players particularly at a non-league yeah. and developing them and selling them on Ivan Tony um, at Brentford their, their now, trading yeah. model really yeah Ivan Tony, um, they've signed Johnson Clark Harris from us in the summer, and um, yeah, that's that's effectively the, their model: um, sell players for big money, sign players for reasonably big money for the league. Um, what will be interesting is to see how the salary cap now affects that, mm. um, because the salary cap is a set cap, uh, and the only kind of caveat to get around there is to have players that are under twenty-one. Um, so those players that are in the youth teams at some of the big clubs will potentially become extremely valuable assets because they're players that don't count for the salary cap and um, don't also count for your, your squad cap limit. So you can have 22 players, but that's 22 players that are over the age of 21. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're the kind of examples that we're working towards, obviously trying to do it in our, our own way. No, definitely. And I think one of the key things is what I wanted to speak with you about is obviously due to COVID as well, we've seen obviously a, de a depletion in match day revenue. Obviously, we know in terms of the, the EFL and the, and the broadcasting rights there, clearly worlds apart from, from what it is in the Premier League. What other sort of commercial revenue generating strings are you guys thinking about or, or almost looking into to really, really boost that, that, that revenue that's been diminished due to COVID? At the moment, we've only really got two, um, well, three, I suppose, core revenue streams. The, the first one is obviously iFollow and streaming games that yeah. way, um, which has been a really useful tool for us. We've been part of the kind of iFollow working committee for the past couple of years. Um, so it's a product that, that we've been pushing for a while now. Uh, and we're seeing some really strong results on that um, over the first few games. Um, aside from that, we've we've also seen some really good growth on our what, retail sales, particularly online, um, as the store's closed at the moment. So um, there's a real focus on developing that. Over the past three years, we've seen 233% increase in retail. Um, and that's basically come from creating a new physical store uh, at the stadium and a new online store, which effectively enables fans to purchase, which was quite difficult to do, particularly online before. Um and uh, then obviously partnerships and utilising the assets that we do have available. And, and again, iFollow has been useful in ensuring that there's still exposure for, for brands. Um, like I said with the strong streaming numbers we've got, we're still seeing lots of fans logging on every game to, to watch. And ultimately that's eyeballs that, that our partners and sponsors want to be in front of. No, definitely, man. And um, I think one thing, obviously I've sort of mentioned it already, but one key thing I think about what you guys are doing that really stood out to me was your ability to publish uh, those strategic priorities. And, and it's quite rare, obviously, for, for clubs to be quite open with their fans about this. What's the reception of, of, of the fans to this? And what's the general feeling within the camp? Yeah, it's, um, it's been a really positive summer. I mean, we... Um, we've been owned by the Alcardi family for a number of years now. Um, but at the start of this year, um, while who's, who's been the club president since the start, been our kind of main point of contact, um, purchased the club outright or the holding stake in the in our holding company. Um, and as part of that, obviously, made some changes to, to the board. But that kind of was a real refresh for us. And communication had been something that um, we'd wanted to do better in the past but it had always been quite a, a challenge yeah. uh, and now with him taking full control the, the, the shackles were off really um, so yeah I mean he provides regular updates for supporters on our progress like you said we've openly pub published our kind of strategic priorities which are all targeted on core areas of the club and match to the club's values um, and it'll provide regular updates on the progress on those points uh, and for us again it's, it's all about communication it's about fans understanding what we're trying to achieve understanding yeah. what the strategy is um, knowing that we're operating with the club's best interests at heart um, and knowing that we're on that journey we're not just um, sitting still kind of waiting for things to, to pass or waiting for something to happen we're actively working as, as hard as we can behind the scenes to to push the club forward and, and unlock that potential. And like I said at the start, I don't think the club's potential has ever really been 
been fully maximised and we're we're hopeful that, that we can do that now. No, I love that. And uh, just sort of in terms of you guys, has there any been any set targets towards when you want to get into the championship by or, or reach the Premier League by? Or is it very much those those core six priorities and, and just, just seeing, seeing how you can, can build from there? Yeah, no, there's no um, no specific timelines and anything like that. I think one of the, the six strategic points is continual improvement. Um, and ultimately, that's what we want to see on the pitch and off it. So effectively, the benchmark for this season is to do better than last season. And that'll be the same next year again. Um, and as long as we're doing that, then we're still improving, we're still moving up the leagues and we're going in the right direction. Uh, obviously, everyone in football wants to get promoted and we're, we're no different to that. We'd love for that to happen this season, but um, this is a, a long-term project. It's not a, it's not something that there's no quick fixes in in life, and there's no quick fixes in football. Um, so it's about for us putting the foundations in place, doing the right things, focusing on those six core areas, and making sure that we commit to them all all the time. Uh, and as long as we're doing that and we're we're moving forwards, then um, I'm sure we'll we'll move up the leagues and start getting towards where we want to be. No, definitely. But it's now come to the time to reveal your answers to uh, what the foot are you lying for? So, uh, obviously the three were, I used to play semi-professional football. Yeah. I once lived next door to the vice president of the United States and I've climbed Kilimanjaro. Now, the lie was I used to play semi-professional football. Uh, like you said, that is a common theme in uh in football, and though yeah. I've played all my life, uh, I've, I've never played semi-professionally. Yeah. Um, so the two truths, obviously, I climbed Kilimanjaro, which I did with um, the Football League whilst I was at Portsmouth, which was unbelievable. Wow, yeah. uh, and I actually, uh, I used to coach football, and whilst I was at uni, every summer I'd go over to America, and one week we ended up in Maryland and living next door to the vice president. So... Um, Wow. Yeah, crazy, crazy experience. Yeah, so we always like to end the show with the what the footy question, which is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space. Obviously, I like to direct the question a bit a bit more for yourself. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk with Project Big Picture and the changes that need to happen within the game, whether there's needed to be an independent regulator. regulator sorry. What do you think is needed within English football to, to help and support clubs like yourself? Well, I think... I think this is a probably the most important moment um, of a generation in terms of the football industry. We're at a point now where for the first time that I can remember, there's a discussion about um, about how football works together, about how that the, the money that's within the game is distributed, about where the power lies. Um, and although, again, there's disagreement like there's going to be in and every walk of life, I think the fact that that conversation has taken place is a step forward. Um, but the decisions that get made now will define the next generation of, of the sport. And so um, for me, I'd love to see the core bodies that are involved in affecting football come together and put uh, personal opinions and put business aside to an extent and look at what's the best thing to do for the long term success of the like I said earlier, a huge proportion of players that play in the Premier League now came through the Football League. Mm. 
uh, and those numbers are, are set to continue. And our pyramids, the English football pyramid is the best in world football. I've gone on record saying that before. And so how do we protect that pyramid? How do we make sure it's sustainable? How do we make sure that clubs aren't going out of businesses, out of business, sorry? Um, because these are these are community assets, they're valuable properties. They're each club in the country as a community department that's doing huge amounts of positive work within their local areas. Each club is committing huge amounts of money to the government through the taxes that, that we pay. Uh, and all of that is potentially uh, at risk, particularly at, particularly at the moment. So um, for me, it's about redistributing the wealth, redistributing the power to an extent, uh, and making sure that decisions that are being made are not within the best interest of each individual club, uh, but for the overall good of the game. And I think having sat on EFL calls for the whole of lockdown, yeah. uh, initially at the start, particularly when it comes to the curtailment of the season, you really saw clubs looking after their own interests, as, as you would expect. Yeah. Clubs that had a chance of going up or going down were making decisions based on how the end of the season affected their club. And again, we've seen a real switch in the last couple of months in that um, I think the EFL as a collective of 72 clubs is probably more unified now than it's ever been. Mm. Um, what we need is to get on board with the government and with the Premier League and with the FA and with grassroots football and the national leagues and work out what is the vision for the future for, for our game in this country and how can we ensure that all clubs survive and all clubs have the opportunity to thrive. Definitely, man. And uh, I think that was, uh, that was a great answer. And uh, yeah, Tom Gorringe, the man behind the scenes, a champion of dialogue between fans and management, Paul Barber's protégé, Future CEO of a football club. Pleasure having you on the podcast, man. Cheers, really enjoyed it. Yeah, awesome, thank you. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's a footy. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. What an episode. Just want to give a huge shout out to my super listeners who got me through the week by VNing me their feedback. So big up Steph, Babak, Sani, Jack, Brandon and Louis. Guys, if you want to join the family, email me all your voice notes at whatthefooty at hotmail.com. I want to hear your favourite episodes, what you like, who you want to hear from and how I can improve the pod. Guys, hit me up. Let's go. Keep up with Team USA with gig speeds over Wi-Fi from Xfinity. Can your internet do that? Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Requires gig internet and compatible gateway. Gig speed Wi-Fi is shareable across all devices. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Xfinity, proud partner of Team USA. Have you been to Express lately? People can't get enough of their clothes. They're like insta-confidence boosters. The jeans come in a temp-control fabric that keeps you comfortable no matter the weather. And the t-shirts, hands down, they'll feel like they're made of the softest fabric you've ever worn. And get this, the suits have stretch and look sharp. Like, what? How do they do that? Everyone's raving about the newest looks from Express. Just check out the five-star reviews. See for yourself and shop the latest at Express.com and in stores.